I had a hard time learning how to ride bikes when I was little. Uh, the balance part was fine. It was the direction part that I was not very good at. And so my dad got, would get me going, and then he would try and get me to steer. The problem was when they put parked cars in my way. I run smack dab into the... I still have some scars on my knuckles from the spare tire of Mr. Layton's Jeep, where I would go straight back into the back of the Cherokee and hit the spare tire and fall down on the ground. It happened more than once. Every time, Dad would come along, and I'm sure he was laughing at me. Uh, I had good balance... Couldn't steer for the life of me. Would always lose my direction, and then I would end up hurting on the ground. And this was before helmets. How many of you learned to ride bikes without helmets? Why do we need helmets now? We're fine. What are they doing different? At some point, as Jerry Seinfeld says, the helmet is wearing you for protection, so what's the point of having the helmet? But I would hit this, hit the ground. Dad would run up, trying to not laugh at me pick me up, set me the other direction towards the other parked car, most likely. One time it was the garage, and uh, onto this big house as if I couldn't see what was coming. And he'd let me go, and he'd push me and tell me, turn, lean, turn the wheel, don't lean too far, click, and over. This is why I don't ride bikes a lot now. Uh, But Dad did something for me there. There was a pattern that Dad did that helped me along my way. First, he would come and he would pick me up, right? Uh, I was smaller then, and he'd set me back on my, the bike, and he'd hold the bike as I'm trying to regain my balance, and then he'd push me along the way and say, go, 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 go. When we look in Psalm 23, we see God doing the same type of movements. He comes alongside you. He restores you, puts you back upright, puts you on the right path, and then sets you free and says, go, 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 do the same. We see these movements and these actions taken by God towards us. And David is writing this and, and, and reflecting on all the ways that God has restored him back to normal. God restores us. He guides us. He gives us the proper perspective. And he sets us free back on life again so that we can do things for his name. There's three actions we want to talk about today. The first one I want to talk about is the restoring piece. David's a shepherd And usually we start talking about shepherds and sheep and all of a sudden we start thinking about other things because shepherd and sheep are so foreign to what our society lives in. But David was a shepherd. It's important that we understand what he's going for, what he's trying to do. He's looking as if a shepherd is caring for its flock and he's saying as the shepherd cares for his flock, so Jesus the God cares for us. And this whole poem is saying we are sheep, God is a shepherd. And David's pointing to these things the whole time. And today, he talks about restoring, refreshing, putting things back on the right path, a guide for his name's sake. Sheep have a terrible time of keeping their balance. They would often get what's called cast. And Craig, there's a video clip in there. I have a video clip of a sheep that is cast. When a sheep is cast, it flips upside down. How many of you have seen it? Yes, England, yeah, you've seen these a lot. Uh, they flip upside down, and they can't get right side up. There's a, there it is. Play it again. Yeah. Oh. That's the thing. Somebody should help it because, thank you, Amy, for that transition. If someone doesn't go help this poor little thing, it will stay like that until it 
somehow this, this one eventually gets up by itself because it's on an incline and it wrestles its way. But if they get stuck in a rut upside down, the sheep will stay like that until they die. Oh, it was funny, huh? It's still funny. A little bit. It's dangerous. It's sad. The sheep will, will flail around like that until the shepherd or something comes alongside and puts it right side up again. This is restoring the sheep. The sheep get cast. The shepherd comes and restores it, puts it back on its feet again. Often what would happen is the shepherd will pick it up and hold the sheep between his legs, his or her legs, and allow the blood to get back into the feet and then walk with it a little bit because it really hurts to walk when your foot's asleep, right? And it would walk with the sheep back until the sheep finally got its balance and then it would take off. This was called restoring the sheep. And what's David say? The first line in this verse, he restores my soul. He puts, puts me back upright. In the springtime, if you noticed in the back of, of that video, there was a sheep that was really, really fat. It, it wasn't fat, it's just fluffy. That's what I always say. It's just fluffy. The sheep had a bunch of wool. In the springtime, the sheep would get so woolly from the winter that they would actually pick up thorns and rocks and other things in their wool from their normal traveling and they would get off balance. And then it'd be easier for them to tip over and get cast. And then they're on their back and now they're in trouble. So a good shepherd would probably stand at the corner of his pasture with his phone and record it like this one did and then go rescue it. But they'd keep a sharp eye on their flock just in case something like this would happen. And then when it did happen, because they cared for their sheep, they'd walk over and they would restore it. We are kind of like sheep. No, we don't have wool. Some of us do. But we don't, have, we, get, we don't have big fluffy things, but we get things stuck on our souls. This is what David is doing. David's saying, sometimes my soul gets heavy. Sometimes my soul gets off balance. Sometimes I get going so much and I've picked up so much debris and things throughout my life. Now I'm falling over and I'm tipped. And oftentimes it feels like we're lopsided or sitting on our back with our feet in the air dangling and we're in trouble. And David taking his firsthand knowledge says, he restores my soul. Our soul is the deepest part of us. Our soul is the place where God breathed life into us first. It says in Genesis 2, 7, the Lord formed man and woman from the dust of the ground and breathed into their nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. That word being is the Hebrew word nefesh. You guys want to say Hebrew today? Say nefesh. Good, you guys are almost bilingual. Nefesh. Nefesh, it means soul. God breathed into his nostrils and man became a living soul. Soul is where we get our imaginations from. The soul is our conscience. The soul is our memory, reason, and affections. It's, it's where we hide those places where we put those things that are uncomfortable to talk about. Those things, those memories that you've picked up a long time ago. And those things add up and they start to weigh your soul down. Perhaps you're weighed down today. Perhaps there's things that are dangling in your soul. How many of you stay up all night rethinking the types of things that you have said or done and you rehearse the conversation of, oh, I wish I would have done it this way. 
Thank you, Fran, you and me. There was one time, sports metaphor, warning, sports ball, as some say. There was one time in, in high school, I, I was on the football team, as you would imagine. I was a captain. I'm not bragging. I'm just setting the scene. Uh, and there was one game where uh, I made a wrong play. I was a lineman, not a wide receiver, as you would guess. And I was supposed to block that guy, and I missed him. And it was the best, it was this play would make or break the game. This was for like third down and one. I was supposed to take this guy out. Alex was going to run right off of this hip and get the first down. It would seal the game and then we could win. I missed him. I totally blew my block. This guy comes running in, takes Alex out, and now it's fourth down and way long and it's my fault. I kind of live in my mistakes a little bit too much. So that night I took a shower. I, I cleaned up. I stayed for the post-game pep talk with the coach. And then I went home, went straight to bed, didn't even answer the phone, didn't do anything. Got up the next morning and just kind of hid out all weekend. Monday comes along and I'm still in my head. I'm still thinking about everything that I did that I, that I, everything I did that I shouldn't have done how I messed up. So Monday comes around. I'm walking around school, head between my, you know, just down. The coach notices me, calls me into his office. The coach was a security guard around campus. So we were allowed to walk around as football players because, you know, we get special treatment. And so I'm walking around between classes and he calls me into his office and he says, Brad, that was Friday night. It's Monday. I still believe in you. You haven't lost your position. You missed a block. Yes, it cost us the game, but don't let it define you. (laughs) But don't let it define you. Coach did something for me that day. He restored my soul, place where I was carrying shame. He turned me right side up, said, you're better than this. I believe in you. The next, that day, he set me back on the right path. Perhaps there's things in your soul. Maybe it's more than missing a block on a football game. Maybe it's that thing you said that you shouldn't have said to your spouse that one time where you were arguing. Or maybe it's that thing you did to your coworker. Maybe it's, it's, it's something that you thought or, or the way that you interacted with a, a, a friend of yours. Things that you have done that you have been carrying around in your soul for so long and now it's like one of those thick, heavy rocks that's trapped in your wool and you're having a hard time staying on your feet. And maybe, perhaps, you feel like your legs are dangling up in the air and you have no way to get back on your feet again. Maybe today you need some restoring Maybe it's guilt towards your kids. Maybe it's a lopsided deal you made that you said was fair. Maybe you've been carrying it around too long and you're weighed down and you need some help. This is where our shepherd, Jesus, has a, he's got a doctorate degree in restoring his sheep. He's good at it. It starts way long ago in Moses. Moses excused himself 40 years after killing an Egyptian. He said, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. And what's God say to Moses? You are. Go lead my people. I'll go with you. Then Peter, Jesus' ministry, Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter goes, no, not me. I'm good with this. And then Peter denies him three times. Three days later, he's face to face with Jesus after denying him. And Peter's probably going, this is really awkward. I did something that I said I wouldn't do. I denied you. I said I didn't even know you. And what's Jesus say to him? One day he's fixing breakfast, fish for breakfast, which sounds weird, but they're having breakfast. 
Jesus looks at Peter, gives him a meal, which is a way of saying, I'm with you. Are you with me? He's eating with Peter. And he says, Peter, do you like me? We say love, but the translation is, do you like me? He says, yes. And the next word says, in the Greek says, do you love me? Peter says, yes. And every time Jesus says back to him, feed my sheep. Jesus asks him three times. And he says, feed my sheep three times. How many times did Peter deny Christ? Three times. He restores Peter back to him. He says, feed my sheep. Then he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter, who made the mistakes. Peter, who chopped off the dude's ear. Peter, who's carrying guilt, shame, comes to Jesus and Jesus restores him. A little later, we read of a guy named Paul writing an axe. He's going to kill some more Christians because that's what he was good at. He's going to imprison them, take them, torture them, do what he's got to do to stop them. Jesus meets him on a road and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul doesn't really know what to say. We wouldn't know what to say either when you're staring there and God's talking to you. And Paul and Jesus says, essentially, after some time, says, I'm going to use you to minister to everybody else in this world. The Gentiles will be coming to me because of you. Jesus is good at restoring us. He gives us a new life. Where we've been flipped upside down, where we've been hurt, he restores us back to himself. And he says, Paul even says this, therefore, if anyone is a new Christ, anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. The self that you were is gone, those mistakes that you've made, they're in the past. The places where you've been flipped upside down can be made new again. Paul experiences it, he writes about it. The problem is we get stuck in it. And we don't think that the old self is here anymore. Or we think the old self is still trying to live and that we aren't new. But Paul says, no, no, that other side of us, that's dead. We've been made alive. We hold on to our mistakes. Jesus gets rid of them. We define ourselves by our mistakes. Jesus says, I don't even see them anymore. We think that we've disappointed God, which is the furthest from the truth. God loves, God wants to restore, he wants to make you new again, he wants to set you back on your feet and send you on your way. The past is the past. And Jesus says, that's not defining who you are anymore. You're upside down. There's a story in Matthew 18 about a shepherd, Jesus, going out to see the one who was lost and the one who was flipped around. The good shepherd leaves the 99 who were safe and sound to go after the one who was missing the one who probably fell over on their backs. And he brings them back and restores them. When God sees us, he doesn't see our mistakes. He doesn't see the things trapped in our wool. What he does see is Jesus. In Colossians 3, it says this, for you had died and your life is hidden in Christ in God. Weird prepositions. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. We've talked about this passage here and there for those, but what it's saying is when God looks at you, he doesn't doesn't see your mistakes. He doesn't see the places where you've gone awry. He sees Jesus because you are hidden with Christ. 
and God sees Christ or you through the filter of who Jesus was. You've been set right. You have been made new. You've been restored. You've been right. You've been made right again. Not only does God restore you, not only does he come alongside us like my dad picked me up off the ground with the bike and set us back on our way, he gives us a, a road to travel on. He's also our guide. This is the next thing that David says. He guides me along the right paths. Some translations say paths of righteousness. We're back on our feet. We're going in the right direction. But if you're anything like me, we're creatures of habit. And soon we'll be right back on our backs with our feet up in the air again like a cast sheep. Because we keep doing the same mistakes over and over again. We are a lot like sheep. Again, David is writing about sheep. Sheep had this strange thing about being creatures of habit, always going the same place, always doing the same thing, always eating the same grass. How many of you eat the same thing at restaurants every time you go to the restaurant? Creatures of habit, this is what we do. We have our routines. Sheep had routines. They would go in the same trails. They would eat the same grass until the grass was gone. One shepherd would talk about this. They would paw at the root of the grass to get the roots out because they were two creatures of habit-like to walk on their own to the next pasture. And so they would create ruts, and the ruts were turned to gullies, and it'd be really hard to walk on it. And then the ground would get infected because they had this idea of pooping where they ate. And so they would eat, and they would dig, and the ground would go away. The grass would be gone. The sheep would be malnourished. And then they would fall over and they wouldn't have the strength to get back up. So sheep need a guide. David says, he guides me along the paths of righteousness. He puts them on the road. So what shepherds would do is they'd have a pasture over here, a pasture here, a pasture here. And they would take the sheep on this rotating schedule around them so they wouldn't eat all the grass over here. Then once that, that one got down a little bit, the shepherd would move them along, along the right paths to another pasture. Let this one regrow a little bit. Give it a week or two to grow up. And then he'd move them to this one. And then he'd move them back to another one. And there was this constant uh, cycle of different pastures to, to graze from. The shepherd knew and guided these sheep along those way, along that way. We, like sheep, can't guide ourselves. We need a guide with a vision. We need a guide who knows where he's going because we get lost. I end up doing the same thing over and over again, and I end up malnourished. I end up on my back full of regrets because I'm so creature of habit-like where I can't get out of my own way. And so we try and guide ourselves. It doesn't work very well. So we need a guide. A guide with a vision means that we have a right path. We need a guide not only with vision, because if our guide only has vision, he's a daydreamer. We need a guide who has a vision, but we need a guide who knows where to go. I don't necessarily want to go where I want to go. I need a, I need a guide to tell me where he would go. I need a guide to take me from this pasture to that pasture. We need that kind of guide. Because when there's not grass, the hillside erodes. And then they become ruts and gullies, and I find myself cast again. We've all done this. We all go astray. Isaiah knew it long ago. He writes this. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to their own way, and we do this without even knowing that we're doing it. 
Habits are like that, aren't they? Habits are those things that you do without even knowing about it. What's the first thing you do when you wake up besides groan? What's the first thing you did today when you woke up? You groaned, and then you, do, you reach for coffee. Unless some of you reach for tea. I don't understand that. But we, all, we have our routines. We're creatures of habit. Habits are hard to break. This is why we need our shepherd. We're stubborn, we're proud, we're self-sufficient, and we keep on, we keep on insisting that we pursue our own path and, and becoming more and more now malnourished. We wander, our lives wander. We need a guide. Not only do we need a guide, we, we need a guide who shows us where to go. We need a guide that will restore us. David writes this as a man who has a lot of experience of falling off the right path. He had an affair. He was an accessory to murder. He, he lied. He, he lied. He did a census when God told him not to do a census. But every time he'd come back and say, Lord, guide me, guide me, he would repent. He would come back to the guide. And he writes this in Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In other words, he says, restore me. Give me your spirit to guide me. David realized that on his own, he's a pretty terrible guide and he needs a new one to show him how to walk, where to walk. He says this in Psalm 48, 14, he will be our guide forever. That's who he's looking for. He's looking for someone to take his steps. He restores us. Our shepherd restores us. Our shepherd guides us. And the last action that our shepherd does is he brings us back to himself. David says it this way. He, he restores my soul for his name's sake. In other words, being set right on the path, having the right guide isn't about glorifying or setting yourself on a pedestal. It's not saying, look, I'm on the right way. It's not looking at yourself and saying, I've got it all figured out or I've arrived. It's not about you. It's not about you being restored. It's not about you being guided. It's about the one who's restoring you. It's about the one who's guiding you. And David understood this. A well-kept sheep, one that's clean and healthy, is not a reflection of how good the sheep is. It's a reflection on how good the shepherd is. If I'm walking around Green Lake, or yesterday I attempted to run, if I'm attempting to run around Green Lake and I see this beautiful golden retriever, it's clean, it's nice, its breath doesn't stink, it's a good dog, do I look at the retriever and go, you're such a good dog, look at you're bathed, you're fed? Can the dog do that on their own? No, give the dog its natural instinct, it would be in the water muddy and chasing ducks, which is awesome. The good and healthy dog is a reflection of an owner who cares for it. A sheep, left to its own devices, will end up dirty, too woolly, lopsided, falling over. So when a sheep is healthy, it's a reflection of the shepherd. This is what David is saying when he goes, for your name's sake. For your name's sake. When we make it about ourselves, that's when we go all wrong. Pride is a lot like chocolate cake. Yeah, it's so delicious, isn't it? But what's the deal with chocolate cake? Can you stop at one piece? No. You get one piece, you 
devour that one. And if it's good and moist, and, and I said the word moist, most of you are cringing right now. But if it's that word and it's the frosting, it's still kind of warm and it's melty and gooey, what do you want? You want another piece of chocolate cake. And then you want, I tend to stop at three, and then you want another piece of chocolate cake, and maybe this time with some ice cream on top. Who cares about what tomorrow is going to feel like? The sugar hangover, the extra tight t-shirts, the days at the gym on the elliptical or whatever you do to get rid of it. Who cares? You want it. You got the sugar cravings. This is a lot like pride. It goes right to your head. In the case of chocolate, to your hips or wherever. Pride goes to your head and it poisons you. It gets you thinking that you're in the middle of it all as if you have something to do with your own survival. As if you're the one who's guiding yourself. As if you're the one who restored yourself. And we soon forget that most of us, all of us, are made from dirt. We've been rescued. We've been restored. We're being guided. This is why David writes it's important to look at our restoration as that this is what God is doing. We benefit from it immensely. We get a lot from this restoration. Being a, but being restored is not a reflection of how good we are. It's a reflection of how good our shepherd is. This is what David's trying to do. When it goes to our head, we end up sounding a lot like the story that Jesus tells in Luke 18 about this Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisee, he tells a story, and the Pharisee, it says here, stood by himself. He goes to the temple to pray. He's walking in with another guy, a tax collector. And the Pharisee stands to himself and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Sounds like a nice guy, right? Everything is about him. Look at him. I thank you that I'm not like him. I thank you. But look at the tax collector. Tax collectors might be someone in our societies like the junkies, maybe the, uh, a homeless person or, or, or the drunk on the corner. And, and this is what the tax collector is pointing at. I thank you that I'm not like them that person you despise or the person you think you're better than. Jesus finishes the story, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Have you discovered that when you think the most of yourself, it's about time that you yourself is going to fall down? There was another time in, in my sports career in high school. Uh, we were, you know, in the halftime when the, the team runs out and they have the banners that they break? At least they did back when I did. They would do the cheer and all of them, and everyone was holding these banners, and then the players would rush through them. I see them do it on college game day every once in a while. It's really fun. I had it, a goal of mine was I wanted to be the guy who was going to break the banner, not the fleetest of foot. And so I, I had a plan. We were all at halftime, and we're in this huddle, and, and Coach has given us his rah-rah speech. I never really did well with them. And as he's talking, I'm just inching away. I'm getting a head start. And I keep going, and then coach says, go! And I'm 20 yards away now. I mean, that's, that's a substan substantial lead for me. I'm not that slow. And I'm running. 
the, the banners there. I hear the people in the crowd. And to make this more interesting, there was some scouts there to look at me and a couple of my friends from colleges. And it's like, cool, I'm going to break this banner. They're going to see me. It's going to be great. And I'm running and everyone's behind me and I hear them yelling my name and I'm doing good. This is my most embarrassing moment, by the way. And then all of a sudden, the 20-yard line reached up and grabbed my foot. I saw it happen. And I slid for a good five to six yards on the grass, head first, in front of everybody. I thought I was going to do it. I thought I was going to make the banner. And then the next thing I know, I'm face down, and my friends are running beside me, hitting me on the butt as they run by. 20 yards, vanish like that. Paul talks about this kind of pride. He says, when you take pride in yourself, if you think you are standing firm, if you think you got a 20-yard lead on everybody and everyone's going to notice you and pat you on the back, watch out. The 20-yard line is going to get you and you're going to fall. Pride is defined as this. It's taking pleasure or satisfaction in your own achievements. Like sheep with too much wool, sometimes the wool of our own is pride and it puffs us up and we're so easily weighed down and lopsided and loaded with the weight of our own importance that we end up not thinking that we'll ever fall over and we end up on our back with our feet in the air. The first step to being turned over is probably your pride. You think that you're too good to fail. You think that nothing could ever, you can't do anything wrong. Next thing you know, you're on your back. I hear stories, I read stories of friends, people dear to me that it happens to them all the time. If you think you're standing firm, watch out, you're about to fall. David learned this. The big thing that he did was with Bathsheba, the adultery. He thought he was too big to fail. He thought his stuff didn't stink, so he stays home. He calls Bathsheba in. He sees her. He's untouchable. The pride of the king. Next thing he learns is he got caught and he needs to be restored. David writes as a man who's gotten off balance and has the consequence of the ego. And so he's learned. He says this in Psalm 31, since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead me, guide me. Psalm 79, he says, help us God and our savior for the glory of your name. Deliver us, forgive us our sins, For your name's sake. For your name. Who's at the center of all of these things? Is it David? No. When you read the psalm, who's David talking about most? He lifts us. He guides us. He makes the water still so that we can drink it. He restores. He anoints. He makes a table. This is what's coming in the next couple of weeks. All of this is focusing around one person. And it's not David. It's the shepherd. He's the one doing all the work. Now, this doesn't mean that we instantly have a horrible self-esteem. This doesn't mean that we do things and put ourselves down. It's the opposite. Humility is the proper perspective of who you are. It means that you're honest about you. It means that, that you don't take yourself too seriously. It means that you celebrate others. 
It, it, it means that you're not clamoring for your own parking spot because it's the right perspective where you see that your parking spot is at the foot of the cross and Jesus is the one who gets the glory. He's the one who's doing the work. Where we belong is the foot of the cross. It's not self-deprecation. It's not an overrated image. Instead, it's the proper position of you and your shepherd. You're following his lead for his name's sake. And your shepherd thinks the world of you. You're not garbage. You're not a sinner. You're not defined by mistakes. In fact, here's what one author said. The maker of the stars would rather die for you than live without you. So if we need to brag, let us brag about that. That's who you are. And that's a pretty good place to be. That's the proper perspective of you. He restores you. He guides you. He brings us back to him for his name's sake. Maybe today you find yourself in a position where you feel like your feet are up in the air and you need to be restored. It's pretty simple. It's a prayer. Jesus, restore me. Forgive me. Restore me back. David said it this way. Give me the joy of your salvation. Maybe today it's you being restored. It's as easy as that. Or perhaps you've noticed that the paths you keep walking down are the ones that keep getting you lost and you need a new guide. You're tired of making the same mistake over and over and over and over again. Maybe you've been forcing your own issues and maybe today you need to learn or you need to let the shepherd guide you and let the shepherd take charge. Perhaps it's the prayer that says, Jesus, guide me. You take, you take the reins. Jesus, take the wheel. Does that work? No. But maybe today the shepherd is the one who needs to start guiding you instead of your own self. Or maybe today you need to make it not about you. Not about how good you look, not about how good you feel, not about you getting all the tension, not about your reputation, your, follow, your following, or your followers. Maybe today you see the reality that you've been restored, you've been guided, and you're not the one to get the credit. Maybe the perspective switches to a life that bears fruit for others instead of a life that bears fruit for you. Maybe you see yourself today that you are cared for, you're died for, and you're searched for, and in turn, you begin to serve him back. You begin to ask, Lord, where are you guiding me? How can I be a part of your plan? Where are you taking me today? Maybe today we understand more clearly, he restores my soul, he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Would you pray with me? Lord, refresh our souls today. We've been wandering around. Some of us have been wandering around in the dark, in the cold, and we need a breath of your fresh air to our souls. Awaken our souls, Paul would write. Breathe new life into us so that our spirit would wake up and our bodies would glorify you. Lord, awaken the deepest part of ourselves. Lord, guide us. We get lost on our own. Lord, give us the wisdom to see where you are leading instead of where we want to go. 
Lord, may we see the paths that you're taking us on. And Lord, may we follow you for your name's sake. May we come back to your name in what you're doing, not what we are doing. Lord, set us upright. Push us along the way and help us to remember you as we go. It's in your name we pray. Amen.